Hello, everyone. This is Robin of Fun With Cars. Just wanted to let you know that we just heard and read and saw the announcement from Nico Rosberg about his decisions for 2017 and beyond. We are surprised as everyone. We did not know about it when we recorded this podcast a couple days ago. We will keep up with this news and what Mercedes is going to do and what Rosberg is going to do in the future. But this particular podcast that you're about to hear does not reflect that news just as a forewarning and quick apology that <laughs> the way timing worked out, this coming podcast does not at all reflect Nico Rosberg's decision to retire. Thanks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 202 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of, well, several Grand Prix. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau. And as most of you probably know, we have a new world champion. That is right. Nico Rosberg has secured the 2016 Formula One Drivers Championship in spectacular fashion at the very end of the season in Abu Dhabi. And uh, we haven't talked to you guys since after the British Grand Prix. British-Hungarian-German Grand Prix was the last update in uh, summer 2016. It's been a little while, but we're blowing the dust off this thing, and we're back to talk Formula One for the end of the 2016 season. It's amazing what adding two humans into this world can do to your schedule, isn't it? <laughs> yes, that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we are we are here, and we have much to talk about. But in a sense, you kind of summed it up right there. Nico Rosberg kept his medal kept his focus, concentrated, and was able to hold on. It was this really bizarre... When we last left, when we last podcasted, Lewis Hamilton was ahead in the championship. Yeah, that's right. After the German Grand Prix, Rosberg was uh, 19 points behind in the championship, uh, coming down from the season high uh, during Russia, which actually didn't change in Spain because, of course, of that crash. 43-point uh, uh, Rosberg lead early in the season, uh, and then... Actually, after our last show, after Germany, um, it was a 19-point deficit with Hamilton in the lead there, and that just steadily uh, rose. So, so Belgium, Italy, Singapore, Malaysia, all the way back after Japan, Rosberg had a 33-point lead, and then from there on out, it was Hamilton wins and Rosberg second places all the way down to the finish. So it was the last very four much Grand a back Prix, and yeah. forth season. Yeah, it was really fascinating. So when Hamilton was 19 points up, many many people were writing this off, saying, "Okay." This is the fourth for Hamilton. Best of luck to you next year, Nico. But what happened in Belgium, Hamilton basically took, I don't know what the total was, 75 penalty positions for replacing three engines. He got a new engine Friday and two new engines Saturday or two Friday and one Saturday, something like that. And he was thrown to the back of the grid each time successively. So he started in quote unquote 75th place at the Belgian Grand Prix and still managed to, I think, come home in third, if I remember correctly. That's right. Yeah. He got up to, up to third place. We talked about this a little bit at the time, the idea of banking engines. And that's what, what the Hamilton's team did is there's, you know, this kind of the weird loophole that has since been closed in the rules about if once you use an engine during a Grand Prix session, then that's a used engine and that's, you, you know, you can use that again, but then there's this penalty for changing and using how many different new engines. So by sort of banking them up and, and putting, you know, five miles on each of all the different engines, 
uh, he sort of banked those up and, and he was getting penalized on top of penalties and top of penalties. Like you say, starting back to sort of if there were such a thing as 75th place, that's where he would have started. But uh, it's funny because earlier this year and last year, we were looking at these similar penalties for McLaren Honda and talking about how ridiculous it is to say, oh, we've got to take 60 grid places. And like, what is that even how, you know, it's super dumb. And at that point, the idea of something like the penalties carrying over to say, well, 60 grid places means you're going to have to take, uh, you know, as many grid places as you can for the next like four races. You're going to be still, you know, paying off those those grid penalties or something like that's not a good way to do it. So since then, they've changed the rules. And now basically uh, only the last engine that you used, uh, if you could use, you know, 10 engines if you want, but only the last one that you used counts as one going forward. So you can't do what Hamilton did anymore to bank up a, a bunch of uh, in-season use. Uh, you know, I've already kind of paid the penalty for these engines and use those for the rest of the season. So it was a clever bit of rules interpretation and, you know, you could say abusing or just, you know, I guess it's, it's you know, clever interpretation uh, of the rules to get a bunch of engines and, and powertrain components because he knew at some point the way the beginning of his season went, at some point he'd have to take a penalty. So he kind of took them all. And then the fact that he could start dead last and come all the way back up to third tells you how much of a penalty, uh, you know, grid spot penalty is for a team like Mercedes in 2016. Turns out not that much. Yeah, exactly right. And it also, uh, you know, I think a part of the strategy was, well, Spa is a good track where we can recover a lot of positions, where we can use our superior engine power, and this track is a little bit friendlier for passing. So this is the place to, to use a business term, take the bath, definitely start in last place, but have some more engines to work with. And it worked to great effect. And I'll tell you, it was after Belgium that I really said, gosh, Nico won that race, but Hamilton only lost 10 points. So I really don't see how Hamilton's, and now Hamilton has a nice batch of fresh engines. I do not see how Hamilton's going to have any issues. But then in Italy, Hamilton flubbed the start again. He was on pole and lost it. And Nico was right there. And what was really fascinating to me about Italy was, unlike in 2014, I believe it was, where, again, Nico was ahead but kind of lost his nerve and Hamilton got past him and ended up winning the race anyway. Yeah, Nico kind of like outbraked himself. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of a weird, one. you know, lapse of judgment. Yeah, so that didn't happen this time. Nico absolutely held his ground, had a comfortable gap, kept it, and won the Italian Grand Prix. I said, oh, all right, it's a little, that's good. And then, was it Singapore next? Yeah, after Italy. Yeah, yeah. and Nico won that one again. I said, wait, hold on. <laughs> and then Nico didn't win the next race, but Hamilton blew an engine. Yeah, that was Malaysia, and Hamilton started on pole, leads the race, and had this engine failure, and that was the biggest point swing there. It went from a, an eight-point lead to a 23-point lead for Rosberg, um, and even though Rosberg only came third, uh, you know, it, it could have been worse, but uh, some are already saying, is that the moment of the season? Is that what changed it around? Because, of course, at the end of the very, the very end of the season, it was a five-point deficit um, at the very end for the win for Rosberg. So well, you could, it's, it's easy to look back at any number of things and say this was the moment that did it because, of course, it's right. all those moments together. There's so many the moments, exactly. Ended up. Yeah, and then what was the race after Malaysia? Because I'm looking at just a big batch of numbers here. Japan. Japan, where uh, Rosberg where won again. From pole. Uh, and and Lewis fell from pole to eighth on lap one. So just another terrible start. And uh, and then that then that there's the, the ten point swing there. So it was from twenty three to thirty three point deficit. Exactly for uh, for Hamilton. So we went from Rosberg having a forty three point advantage to Rosberg having a nineteen point deficit, and many people writing Rosberg off. 
to Rosberg having a 33-point advantage with four races to go. And a lot of people saying, oh gosh, wait, wait, hold on. How's Hamilton going to do this? Because with four races to go, Rosberg could just uh, finish behind Hamilton. Even if Hamilton wins every race, if Rosberg comes second, gosh, you know what? Even if Rosberg becomes comes home third once, he still has the lead. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. It was really amazing. And what I want to discuss with you a little bit is focus and real tenacity, because I think, I don't think there's going to be any argument here that Hamilton is the superior natural talent to just about anyone in Formula One racing. Would you agree with that? Right. He's, you know, a top three, if not top one. Great. Yeah. But what about Hamilton's focus? Was he the most focused every time? I think you could argue that there were waves of Hamilton kind of letting loose a little bit, kind of relaxing, where Nico this year, unlike 14 or 15, 2014 or 2015, Nico really seemed to stay focused and consistent. And this was by far Nico's strongest year, in my opinion. Now, it was also a fairly lucky year for Nico in terms of some difficulties Hamilton had, but there were also a lot of issues that Hamilton caused himself that Nico didn't. So I don't know. Curious to hear your thoughts on this. Well, I don't know. I don't want to read too much into the typical narrative. Read of into all Ros- of it. Read it. Well, uh, of Rosberg was super focused and Hamilton was not. I mean, we, you know, Hamilton is on Snapchat and stuff. And so you can see, oh, he's like, he's going to these parties and he's doing whatever. But I don't know. I, I know I can't say one way or the other. And certainly more uh, tabloid stuff and, and all that is written about Hamilton. But how much of it was his focus? I mean, I'm looking through the, some of the results and, uh, and some of these, you know, it's uh, China, power unit problem in qualifying. Uh, you know, he was last on the grid. Russia, uh, power unit problem in qualifying, put him 10th. Uh, you know, the only DNF Rosberg had in the whole season was from Spain when, you know, the guys crashed into each other. Um, you know, Rosberg had no other, you know, technical DNFs or anything like that. Uh, Ham- you know, Hamilton, of course, the Malaysia one from uh, from being in pole and leading the race to DNF from mechanical. A couple of the other things. Yeah, there were some things in Lewis's, uh, there were Lewis's problem. I guess one of the big questions is, those poor starts. Uh, would you put that down to a lack of focus from Hamilton? I don't. I think that's a bit of a of a jump to say. Well, if if he were more focused, could he have done his starts better? I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't. You know, we don't really know what the problem with that was. Uh, I think Hamilton has implied uh, after some interviews and stuff of like, oh man, I'll, I'm going to tell you all about this in like ten years once all the people are gone or whatever. But like, kind of like I've seen some stuff uh, working at Mercedes and behind the scenes and seeing what all happens and. Some people, of course, as always happens, uh, have read into that and think, oh, there's this whole, you know, uh, conspiracy about Mercedes really wanted Rosberg to win. And so they were messing with Hamilton's clutch and all that, which I don't I don't buy. No, I don't but, believe uh, any of that. So I, I don't know. I'm just looking at the times that he did well. I mean, yeah, OK, there are a couple of third places and second places and stuff that could have been better. But a lot of those were were poor starts, which doesn't seem to me like a lack of focus. But I don't I don't know one way or the other. A bunch of times that Hamilton got pole position and was fastest. Uh, so, you know, looking over the, uh, the results, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to go so far as to say that Rosberg doesn't deserve this result because of course the way to win a Formula One championship is to get more points than anyone else. And that's exactly what Rosberg did. Of course, the Mercedes was the strongest car this season. That's, uh, I think, very hard to argue with. Rosberg happens to be in that car, um, but he's in that car because he's a good driver and because he's, his career has gone that way. So both Hamilton and Rosberg are benefiting from all the 
the fact that that car is really good and the engine's really good and the aero and the team and the whole organization seems to be working well and that is just what's working right now. So in a way, you could say, you know, that this, this opportunity was handed to both of them because they had this built-in advantage over the Ferraris and the Red Bulls and so on. But I guess to put it down to a, a focus doesn't seem to me like the issue, but, uh, you know, I could uh, I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I'm certainly not going to blame his race starts on focus. I will blame a little tiny bit based on a limited amount of knowledge that I have. I fully admit I don't know anywhere near the whole story, but I think there might have been a lack of diligence or a lack of study to really understand exactly the bite point of the clutch and all the different mechanisms of the clutch. I have a suspicion that Rosberg perhaps spent more time on the simulator, spent more time with the engineers understanding the clutch work earlier on than Hamilton did because it came about after the Italian Grand Prix that Hamilton spent more time learning it. And indeed, you know, look no further than the last four races. He had spot-on launches each and every time. One way or the other, the race starts were sorted. If you take conspiracy theories off the table, which I think are fairly ridiculous, then you have to think at, at some level Hamilton received a better understanding of how the bite point and how the clutch mechanism really works to obtain the best launch. So that's a long-winded way of saying, yeah, I think Hamilton, I wouldn't use the word focus, but Hamilton could have done a little bit more earlier to improve that situation. And then there were just moments where he seemed, I just got this sense just from the way he interacted with uh, media and the way he carried himself on the TV coverage that we saw at the Grand Prix, at the Grand Prix, excuse me, he almost sensed a little bit of inevitability that, yeah, he, he'll carry this championship again because, after all, he'd done it two years before. There were times in 2014 where uh, Nico Rosberg was ahead, and that didn't stop him. So I think he was allowing himself to relax maybe just a little bit too much. So I wouldn't, I'm not trying to make any kind of claim that he was too much of a playboy or he was partying too much or anything like that. I'm not making any of those kind of suggestions. What I am saying is maybe his mentality was, I don't have to bring 100% all the time because I still got this. Throughout that period of time, Nico was just, he was just getting more hard-lined and just getting more studied and diligent and I think the biggest thing that Rosberg improved frankly was his mental toughness Rosberg's mental toughness and just relentless going at it that he did versus Hamilton just getting a little bit more relaxed about it can kind of sum up the 2016 championship given that Hamilton is so wickedly amazingly quick naturally and Rosberg, a great driver on many, many levels, but just not Hamilton's equal in that sense. So, I mean, so the the guy with all the mental toughness that he gained over the season is the guy that lost the last four races in a row to the to Hamilton, who was just faster. I mean, I don't know that that quite makes sense. Or if you think Lewis got focused, but it was too late. 
because uh, I mean, no, I, I don't no, think that's, you know, Lewis did really well at the very end of the season. He was like pole to victory. No, that's exactly that. that's when it got in very different situation. It got really, it got real, and Hamilton still wanted it, and he knew he he had to do everything he could to do it, and yeah. So basically, without quite the tone that you had, yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah, that's what happened. He he really saw. I mean, look, don't forget that the biggest single swing was when he was ahead in Malaysia and his engine failed. Okay. Right. So he was already seeing, oh, God, this is great. I'm not saying it didn't click until fourth race from the end. I'm saying when it came to those four races, he knew it was all or nothing for him. And, yeah, I think that did heighten his resolve and his focus. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's going to get anyone's attention when it's really time to, you know, crunch time and whatever. That's a, a metaphor that's used all over the place. But I, I don't know that he was not taking it seriously. I mean, when you have a, you know, a, a DNF like that that doesn't seem like a driver fault thing at all, that's a huge, a 25-point swing when you're leading the race from pole. You've already, like, you know, it's a sort of a foregone conclusion. And, of course, in that race, uh, Rosberg was, was behind anyway. Uh, so it was a, a huge, you know, potential change. And the fact that it came down to five points in the end, it wasn't like it was midway. It was pretty close. and then. Uh, and then one guy just ran away with it, and you could say, "Oh, well, you know, the other guy just really wasn't up to it." It's like they're both really good drivers, and they were both being, you know, really crafty right up until the end. Which, of course, we can talk about in a minute here. But you know, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with the the thought that he was, you know, kind of given up on it too early or whatever. It's it's easy to look back and see that, but I don't know. I guess if uh, if Rosberg had had his, had had some kind of mechanical problem similar to what had happened to Lewis over the, the course of the season, or had a, a bad start and lost five places and then just just missed it by a point or whatever. Would we look back and still say like, oh, well, Hamilton didn't have enough focus or it's just, you know, they both had a bit of bad luck, which happens. And uh, this guy came out on top or that guy. It's it's I want to try to not be too revisionist or, you know, kind of backward looking about uh, just, uh, well, of course, it was always going to happen this way because Hamilton wasn't focused. It's like, well, I don't know. Yeah, but it's only five points in the end. Jim, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's a lot easier to see. Uh, anyway, you can disagree with me. And that's absolutely your uh, your your right to do. But I, I don't want you to. It's not like I'm saying oh, Hamilton stopped caring. I'm I'm talking about just subtle degrees here, you know, where it just, he just relaxed just enough where he wasn't really pushing to the absolute edge. Like, I'll give you a, I'll give you a perfect example of what I, what I mean by this. And again, uh, I'll preface it by saying, I don't think Lewis Hamilton was this extreme, but uh, Nick Heidfeld was a Formula One driver that, to me, holds the record for improving his performance to keep his job more so and better than any other driver I've seen. Because I swear he was on the chopping block for different teams like four or five different times. And the second it was announced that if he doesn't improve his performance, he's out, he would do way better, right? There's some comedy in that, but there's also the truth that he had extra motivation to really push himself as farther and fast as he could go. And Heidfeld suffered from ability of saying, oh, I'm not on the chopping block. He'd relax a little, and turns out that would slow him down. So I'm just saying that that's the type of thing I'm talking about. He would just relax just a little bit, calm down just a little bit, and that would take away some of the edge that he would otherwise have. And I'm not saying that only started in the last four races. I'm saying that in the last four races, you could see that that was gone and Lewis was absolutely laser focused and performing at his best and Rosberg was doing everything he could to hold on. 
I think maybe Hamilton's engine mechanics were parting a little bit too hard, but I don't. I don't think. I won't completely focus. rule that out. I'll, I won't, yeah, that's not that. Speaking of chopping block, that's not on the chopping block for right. Yeah. So um, while we're talking championship here, of course we talked uh, Rosberg and Hamilton, but we can run down some of the results with some uh, some some thoughts as we go, if uh, if you don't mind. Um, sure. So it was ultimately Daniel Ricciardo that came third. He uh, ended up beating Sebastian Vettel to third in the drivers' championship. That was one of the few by forty-four uh, sort of close races. It would, I mean, yeah. in the end, not even that close, right? Yeah, I guess between fourth and fifth, uh, Vettel and Verstappen. That was right up until the end. Even during in Abu Dhabi, uh, when when Verstappen was ahead, it was it was you know that was four fourth in the championship. But uh, it was you know Ricciardo uh, third in the championship. Uh, Vettel in fourth, then Max Verstappen. Um, so a very solid, uh, certainly, you know, latter half of the season for him to uh, get all these points. And, uh, you know, the, the switch to Red Bull uh, looks pretty genius in hindsight now. And, you know, especially seeing, we'll see Kvyat much farther down the list. Yeah, wow, well, um, yeah. I mean, the the uh, Park Kvyat, man, started the started the, the year in a Red Bull and ended up on a bicycle. So that's, uh, that's how that goes. Well, um, y- y- uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Kimi Raikkonen got sixth place in the championship but, with 186 points. But, 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 Kimi Raikkonen out-qualified Vettel. Kimi Raikkonen uh, performed better in qualifying 11 times to Vettel's 10. And Raikkonen certainly was, in the second half of the season, the more consistent of the two Ferrari drivers. Vettel really went off on these almost just nonsensical tangents yelling in the radio during the race at one point uh was it the mexican grand prix complaining about charlie whiting and uh, vettel really suffered i you know here i will be dr phil for a minute vettel was suffering from stress and the way he dealt with that stress was with yelling and i don't think that's a healthy way to deal with stress so maybe vettel should take up some yoga Maybe, you know, have some stress stones to twirl around while he's in the car. I don't know. But he ended up, just the way things panned out, he ended up getting the better uh, points. He ended up finishing ahead of Raikkonen, but, you know, not by much and with some inconsistent performances. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, with his championship, sees himself as sort of one of the elder statesmen now. And when he perceives these wonky things happening, I mean, I, you know, I've heard of how many times on the radio, here, blue flags, honestly, like what, you know, come on guys, how can you possibly <laughs> That's true. Uh, be doing this? And it's, uh, you know, I guess it's when things were going really well for him at Red Bull and he was winning all kinds of races and all kinds of qualifying and championships and so on. It's like, what do you have to complain about? Uh, and now that things aren't going that way and he's, you know, moved to Ferrari and it sort of looked more promising sometimes than others. And it's kind of been up and down, but a lot of the season really pretty down. Um, but he's still been able to, you know, to come forth is still, uh, still not bad, you know, beating, being Verstappen and beating his teammate Raikkonen, um, you know, he's still done well, but I, I completely understand the frustration from being in one of the top teams and really with this, uh, big advantage in cars to, to not having that and seeing those guys drive away with this championship and then being, you know, which then puts himself back in traffic more often and there's a higher level of frustration and stress, like you say, then. It's, you know, I guess I don't, I don't think he's a, you know, become a terrible person or anything. It's just kind of like, yeah, it seems like he's under some stress and uh, hopefully they can regroup. I mean, hopefully the Ferrari for next year is really competitive. And then we have more sort of what, you know, four-way, six-way, eight-way battles for, for qualifying, you know, pole positions and for wins and all that. And uh, 
And then he's got less to complain about being stuck back and stuck behind, you know, uh, blue flag back markers and stuff like that. But he's out really dicing for, for leads and for victories and then isn't so frustrated and it's all good. So rather than it's like, shut up, Vettel, and deal with it, it's like, hopefully that team, you know, takes a step forward, as does everyone else, to uh, to line up closely and that we have some exciting racing. Maybe the most noteworthy of everyone here is the guy that finished seventh because Sergio Perez did a phenomenal job this year. Really showed the best of what Force India could offer. And as a lovely corollary, Force India did fantastically well to finish fourth in the constructors, but maybe you want to discuss that separately. Sergio Perez went from an upstart to a McLaren dropout after just one bizarre season where he showed potential pace, but he also showed a real... I don't know, maybe lack of understanding of how to operate within a team and just had a really hard time, regained his footing at Force India and has since become a very highly regarded driver, and I think rightly so. Not to mention, uh, finished in the Drivers' Championship ahead of both McLaren and Honda drivers for this year, so well done for that. Yeah, and his teammate, of course, uh, Nico Hulkenberg, who ended up in ninth, although Hulkenberg is still very good. He was a little less consistent than Sergio, and his best result was not as good as Sergio's best result. However, he was still very solid. Of course, in between those two was the top Williams driver, Valtteri Botas, who I don't, I feel like his result was. He, how do we say that? He was the top finisher to stay under the radar. Like, he never did anything to really stand out, but he was always there and he was always capitalizing on any opportunity that was given to him. I think that's a fair way to characterize his season. Well, thank you, sir. And then, of course, in 10th, in uh, Fernando Alonso. So basically doing the best he can with the McLaren Honda, which really just never came around uh, as a competitive car. And it's too bad that that's the case, but that's the case. So uh, It had moments. Up, you know, it had moments. Um, it had moments. It had Q3 appearances. It had... Uh, you know, I mean, 54 points. That's, yeah, that's I do believe, more than some. Let me double check here. I do believe that uh, Fernando Alonso, yeah, he had a sixth place finish and a fifth place finish. So there were times and it's ironic, but one of the worst, one of the worst races McLaren had was Japan. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, so be it. And then I don't know that we need to go down everywhere, uh, down the whole rest of this, because I, I had forgotten Stoffel Van Dorn uh, with his uh, early you know, replacement drive uh, when Alonso couldn't be in the car. You got Rio Harianto in there, who, of course, didn't finish out the season. Oh, but um, you're passing the, the, the next guy on the list, 11th in the championship, is our first retiree, though. Yeah, man. Felipe Massa had his, uh, had his farewell walk of uh, Hall of Fame, walk of fame, I don't know what you call it, uh, in Brazil after after crashing out his car spectacularly. Right, so it I mean... it ended up being sort of a nice tribute thing to, yeah, uh, to do. That but... was what was so bizarre about it, right? It was, technically speaking, a walk of shame of sorts, right? He crashed the car. But he crashed the car in horrendous conditions. Everyone knew they were bad, and many people crashed, including, well, I know Raikkonen did, and, uh, well, that's the only one's clicking in my mind at the moment, but it 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 became, it quickly became just a wonderful tribute where he waved to the fans, got huge roars from the crowds, and then he effectively walked the paddock and got a lot of love from various factions of the, of the paddock. 
spent a little bit of extra time with the Ferrari folks, you know, an extra few seconds. And yeah, it was just a really, really thoughtful, real moment and a real nice send away for Felipe. And even though it was technically his penultimate race, this was certainly his, that was a spiritual end to his Formula One career because it was his homeland, Brazil. Yeah, and the fact that there was just uh, safety car running happening out on the track means that, you know, they were following all this with the TV cameras and everybody got to see it. Because otherwise, if he had finished the race like everyone else, then he would have, you know, been able to shake hands with his, you know, former former Ferrari colleagues and all these various people up and down the grid. But, you know, it would be in, in random meetings and parties and stuff like that. It wouldn't have been anything that was sort of public. So this ended up being this nice public display of affection for, you know, this really quality dude who's been around Formula One forever. And, uh... And, you know, a nice sort of a send-off. And, you know, you say walk of shame. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the, the walk had nothing really to do with his crash. Obviously, that's why he was out of the car and walking. But it wasn't like, oh, look at this guy. He crashed his car. Ha-ha. It was like, you know, if, if, after two seconds of like, oh, it's Massa. Like, this is a, you know, nice little nice little moment here. And uh, it was it was nice that, you know, the cameras were able to follow that. We were able to take part in that from uh, watching from home. And uh, his family was there and the whole thing. It's not as if he was wearing the clothes he had on the night before. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, but yeah, I, 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 you know, it is, it's, you don't want to be out of the Formula One car before most of your competitors are also out of the Formula One car. You heard it here first. That's uh, some words. Uh, that's, that's, that's some racing advice from a former driver right there. <laughs> Moving back to 15th place, Jensen Button sort of for a while was talking like oh i'm this i'm taking next year off and oh, i'm still going to be uh, an ambassador but i'm back in 2017 and then i think over even after he said that himself uh, you know just looking at his tweets and the stuff he's posting himself let alone other press conferences and things talking about him he's now you know pretty well talking about yeah okay this is my last time you know he, he started off it's probably my last time in brazil and then i think he was pretty sure in abu dhabi he's like yep this is my last time in an f1 car uh and you know it, racing at least and um he has not officially retired and, and as we've talked about, uh, is still under contract with McLaren. But as we have seen many, many times in the past, uh, anything's possible with enough sort of money and, and you know, deals being made that uh, that contract could, of course, be changed for something else in the future. Or maybe he just, you know, he shows up in like a Mark Webber thing as a commentator and just kind of, a, a, a you know, connected to Formula One, but not as a driver anymore. But uh, it really seems like I think we can safely say that Jensen Button is done being a Formula One racing driver ended this season with 21 points, which is not so excellent, but... Um, he ended with you know, four just, less points than Daniel Kafiat. So, I mean, if you want to... One way to put it. Yeah. Here, I, I have to say, Jensen Button really upset me. I'm almost certain he could have been a Williams driver based on the articles I read at the time, everything else. He could have been a Williams driver. He could have been in Formula One next year. And he chose not to be. And because he has this uh, contract with McLaren for 2017, not as a driver, but as an something, ambassador, tester, whatever, he's now also out of uh, out of the running for any top-level World Endurance Challenge uh, racing seats. I think it's very possible that he could have been a factory Porsche driver or a factory Toyota driver. I think driver. that's still possible, though. I think with enough, with, with the right money changing hands and the right deal, I think, you know, the contract with McLaren could be changed and could be could be bought out or whatever. So I, I wouldn't rule that out. All right. I won't uh, rule it so out. But as... why why even make it more complicated in the first place? I mean, he, I, I am of full belief that Jensen would be near ideal endurance car driver. He's very sensitive to 
tuning changes in the car. He's very adept at what changes to make to the car. He's an extremely smooth driver, which is easier on the equipment. And he's in, he's very healthy, very, and uh, so making him very consistent for longer endurance runs in a car. This is, this is your guy. Offer him lots of money to put him in your very fast endurance car and yeah, win on, some Audi. races, win some championships. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was leaning a little bit more Porsche Toyota way. But yeah, sure. Yeah, Audi. Well, but now, not? well, with Audi retiring from WC, now there's all these extra drivers that are looking for jobs. Don't, so, I mean, I I'm know. sorry. I mean, well, I'll be curious to see in the next couple of months, you know, what we see and hear from Jensen Button. Does he just show up in commercials and stuff or is he walking around the paddock? I mean, you know, Jackie Stewart, I don't even know what, like, who pays him if anybody does anymore. But he's always around. He's got his, you know, RBS connection or whatever. Royal Bank of Scotland just, was his most recent sponsor. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, you know, he's connected to the sport as just one of these guys that's a gentleman driver of the sport. And it's like he shows up on various TV things and interviews and all that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, Jensen's a bit young to be to just be doing that. It seems like he should be in a car, but he may be doing that. Or like Mark Webber, where he was, you know, a forked factory Porsche driver and commentating on F1 and occasional podium guy and just, you know, man about the paddock that, you know, people uh, people have a lot of respect for. And I think Jensen could, uh, could do that well. Or a David Coulthard type of just kind of, you know, obviously... DC with Red Bull, but various events and promo things and 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 TV commentating and whatever. That's that's not a bad gig. I don't know that, that uh, maybe a lot less stress than being trying to be a top level endurance driver and uh, and and really all the all the work that that entails. So I'll be curious to see what Jensen comes up with in the in the coming months and sort of see where he surfaces next uh, next spring, if anywhere. Well, I will definitely be paying close attention. I can assure you that much. Um, I want to give a shout out to one more retiring driver, Esteban Gutierrez. Uh, you know, really just kind of an amazing run he had. And uh, I I feel like he really stretched his career out uh, mightily. So uh, good on to you, Esteban. I'm sure he'll be announcing his retirement any day now. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Yeah, uh, possibly Rio Harianto as well. I guess we don't really know yet uh, if he's going to be back next year or not. Well, but yeah, that's uh, yeah. good to hear, man. He was around for a while and just had. I don't know, kind of a inauspicious career. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'll be, I'll be, I'm looking forward to seeing some uh, a new face in the Haas next year. So we'll, uh, you know, I guess wish Esteban well, but too bad it didn't uh, come together for him. Well, Esteban was a Ferrari uh, reserve driver and development driver, I suppose you could call in '16, and I'm pretty sure that was part of the reason why Haas picked uh, for '15. Excuse me, and I'm pretty sure that's why Haas picked him up for this seat in 2016 and boy, he just, you know, he had some bad luck, but he also, he just had a lot of comparatively lackluster performance to Grosjean. And here's the thing. Grosjean's a passionate driver, wears his feelings on his sleeve. Gutierrez really got riled up early and often. And at points really seemed to blame the team for just a lot. Here's one difference between Esteban Gutierrez and Roman Grosjean. Grosjean, 29 points. Gutierrez, zero. Well, so that that would be 29 differences, I would think. It's, uh, I mean, it's it's tough because, of course, some of those were not his fault, for sure. But some of them were, and to, to, you know, to not make any points over the course of the entire season in a car that was capable of it. I mean, in Grosjean's hands, uh, 29 points is quite a bit. Uh, it's more than even Jensen Button, like we just talked about. And so... It's, uh, you know, that, that is a huge difference there, but just if, if he was the nicest guy in the world and a great guy to work with and, 
everyone agree he was natural talent and so on, that'd be great. But that doesn't seem to be the case. And uh, he, um, you know, it's it's whatever. He's one of those guys. I'm not super sad to see him go. Um, it's too bad because, of course, uh, it, you know, Mexico is a big deal right now with the second year of the Mexican Grand Prix and third year next year. And, you know, a lot of light on Checo Perez and all that. It seems like it could be a good fit for sponsors and all that. But that's uh, too bad. It's just not quite getting the performance in there. And uh, it's not going to be not going to be his thing for 2017. Right. It, exactly right. And, you know, if you just look at the different stats that we have, it's just it's pretty clear. Esteban did not beat Romain Grosjean at, at, at any level. And he outperformed him sometimes, you know, but sometimes is about as much as, <laughs> you know, I'm searching for positive here. There just isn't much. And I, I just, he potentially, he's not, I'm not trying to suggest that he's not a good driver or maybe even a worthy driver, but his options now are limited to Sauber or Manor. And there are younger, hungrier, or better funded drivers out there. Yeah, and probably probably some that are all three. Quite possibly. So uh, I want to jump over to the constructors column for a moment, if we can. Yeah, we can. Uh, as we talked about, uh, Mercedes has had this conver- has had this championship sewn up for quite a while. Seven hundred and sixty-five points. That is a lot of points. Well, two hundred and ninety-seven uh, more than Red Bull, if I'm doing the math correctly. Yeah, it is just yeah, man, just about three hundred points different. That's that's a big difference. <laughs> um, so Red Bull second place, uh, beating Ferrari by seventy points. Yeah, pretty like. um, pretty healthy uh, take for Red Bull. Which uh, again, I just um, this will be the last time I say it. I promise. Well, I don't promise. I, I I hope this is the last time I say it. Red Bull really owes Renault an apology. <laughs> that engine was quite good and enough to keep them right in the hunt with everybody against uh, with against everybody other than Mercedes. Right. And even the Mercedes, I mean obviously Mercedes isn't the only team that uses that engine and they're the only team that high up in the in the grid. So, you know, in the results. So that's yeah, the Renault doesn't seem to be that bad. Uh, of course, next in line is Ferrari. Uh so behind the Red Bull, uh but uh you know, third place um, and then that was the the closer battle near the end of the season was for fourth between Williams and Force India, and in the end, of course, it was Force India, especially with a strong showing in Abu Dhabi, to uh, to to get fourth place in the championship. So beating the uh, veteran team Williams uh, with 173 points, that is a very solid performance for Force India. Not and not that close in a 35 point gap between those two. I mean, and <laughs> that's what's really fascinating about that. We were talking about it, this is. Mercedes versus Mercedes power plant. So that is pure chassis and driver that we're comparing here. Certainly, Felipe Massa, when he was on, he was a brilliantly trick, a quick, excuse me, driver. And he really had an, a wonderful passion that just everyone loved. He was a big crowd favorite in Formula One. But, I, you know, Felipe was probably... I think it might have been even better had he retired last year in terms of his impeccable record, you could say, sure, uh, or strength of his record. And so Williams was hurting a little bit for driver lineup, but that, I mean, <laughs> that Force India chassis was strong, and the Williams couldn't quite keep up. It, it's kind of amazing to think about, but it's true. The Force India car, um, ever since it took the name Force India, has been steadily improving in the championship year on year. It's it's really Force India is an impressive story of the little guy doing well. 
And to look at it another way, they've got two good point scoring drivers. I mean, Checo with 101 points, Nico Hulkenberg with 72 points. Uh, and that, that seems to be a big thing with a lot of these backmarker teams, or not, not backmarkers, we're in the midfield here. Um, a lot of these, the, the teams that aren't necessarily the, the super top end is maybe they have one guy who's just bringing the money and he's not as good. And maybe they have the other guy that's talent or, or whatever, you know, some kind of balance back and forth um, or enough, you know, in the case of like the Haas, you know, two, you know, competent drivers, but just a lot of technical problems. And it, that's, a, that's a new team. So it's not really fair. But uh, yeah, with Force India, two guys regularly scoring points. And, uh, you know, of course, Checo ending up with more than Hulkenberg, but still solid drivers, obviously really good engineering. And it's sort of still, you know, a much smaller, scrappier team. Um, they've had a bunch of financial troubles and all that. I think they're already asking for an advance on the prize money for next year because they need that for paying these bills this year and all that. But to see that they, they can do so well as to beat Williams and McLaren, let alone Toro Rosso, who's been around forever now, um, it's a, uh, you know, a really solid effort for those guys. And it's uh, it's good to see. Williams had been regaining strength in the last couple of years, you know, with the chassis redesign of 14. I do hope that they can resurge yet again next year with our next batch of rules updates coming. Williams is a team that they have such a history and they're such, they're such a great team. They're, they're, uh, they're your enthusiast fans perfect team right they just they're really into it for the racing through and through and you just i can't do anything more than just respect it and is obviously very strongly family connected uh, frank williams founding the team his daughter claire deputy team principal effectively running the team doing uh, a great job considering everything i just really hope that they can be strong again and even uh, perhaps inch towards the top and really be in that top three that's my hope for them. Um, behind Williams is McLaren. They made real improvements from last year, but still not really in the hunt, even for podium finishes. Yeah, and there's I know how much more to say about McLaren. It's just that car has just really been a, a, a shame. Uh, the engine as well. I mean, I guess I will say that the Honda. I mean, they're you know sixth place is like bang in the middle, right? Five teams ahead of them, five teams behind them. So you could say, okay, the, the Honda engine can't be that bad because it did beat other cars with, uh, you know, with, with Renault and Ferrari powertrains, but, uh, it's, and, and, you know, the manner, I guess with the Mercedes as well, but, uh, you know, just McLaren should be better than this, right? You know, they've such a big team, such the history, all the engineering, all the, all the money that they have. And the, the, you know, the, the, I mean, Alonzo and Button, like how, what better drivers could you find? Uh, than than those guys that that uh, that I guess aren't already driving for Mercedes or whatever, but uh, it's a, you know it's really just too bad that it hasn't come around better than them. Um, but it's a big I mean it's a big jump too from uh, Williams 138 points to McLaren with 76. It's not like that was really close. Uh, so it's just McLaren sort of be trying to be scrappy and find points where they can, which is too bad for a team that has had so many championships over the years and has had such good results over the years, and uh, we've seen so many big names uh, go through there and be successful there. So it's. Uh, I mean, I don't want to just belabor it, but yeah, it's uh, kind of sad to see them uh, languishing back there. And, you know, it's midway through the grid, but uh, the McLaren should be, should be higher than that. I, I agree with you. And it's not belaboring a point when it is a strong point to make and a sad one as well. And I think even one more uh, sad point was that McLaren was only 13 points ahead of Toro Rosso in uh, for seventh. They were seventh in the championship. And Toro Rosso was running last year's Ferrari spec engine. Those were the team that McLaren beat just by a little, not even by that much, you know. 
from there, if you don't mind, I'll just quickly say for um, Haas Ferrari was eighth, uh, Renault ninth, Sauber Ferrari tenth, and the Manor slash MRT Mercedes was eleventh. And there's one point I really want to make. I really love this statistic. All eleven teams scored points this year. I think that's a really great uh, result. I'm really happy with that. For Manor, I mean, they had their one point early on, and that was that clinched or not clinched, but it held them in tenth place in the championship right up until Brazil, uh, last from the second from the last race, and uh, then Sauber got the two points uh, with their one finish. So, uh, you know, that was a great news for Sauber to then all of a sudden you know leapfrog their way from from last up to tenth in the championship. But uh, it sucks for Manor, who was you know it's a huge difference in prize money from tenth to eleventh. So uh, it's big big shakeups at the end, you know, ultimately decided by one point. But that is. Uh, a very dramatic thing for teams at that end of the grid with uh, the way the funding and the money and everything goes. So uh, I guess good if you're a Cyber fan and not so good if you're a Mercedes Manor fan, but hey, so it goes. I do want to spend just a touch more time talking about the final race of the Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi. It was fascinating on a lot of levels. It turned into, especially in the latter laps, a fairly tense race because the winning driver, uh, Lewis Hamilton, was intentionally slowing down. And he was doing so in the hopes that third and fourth places might be able to catch and perhaps even overtake second place driver Nico Rosberg. Now, if Nico finished third, that would have made no difference in the championship standings. But if Nico lost third, maybe he'd if Nico lost second, maybe he'd lose third too because Max Verstappen and Sebastian Vettel were right there. Vettel ended up getting past Verstappen. It was a real possibility that Nico could lose the championship in the waning laps of the race. The question came up, uh, well, it was a row to uh, quote our British friends of whether it was the right or wrong thing to do of Hamilton to slow down intentionally, and was it the right or wrong thing to do for Mercedes to tell him to speed up? Uh, so if you're Lewis Hamilton, uh, I would say it is the right thing. Started saying there, the um, the race was tense right up until the end, and that is thanks to Lewis Hamilton because if he very had true. very uh, very true, he had the pace to just you know check off into the distance and keep driving away. Uh, Rosberg probably would have been in a comfortable uh, gap behind him. And then it would have been whatever gap back to uh, Ferrari and Red Bull and so on. But but that also would, comfortable, you know, would have been most like, likely. Right. Um, and all probably sort of settled into their paces. Uh, that would have been, you know, okay, a pretty processional race. And there were certainly parts of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, you know, the first sort of half of it, that was fairly professional. There wasn't a whole lot that was really happening until it got clear after the pit stops and all that. It's like, okay, there's no mechanical problem hitting Rosberg's car. Uh, they all made it through the start cleanly. Uh, and let's uh, start playing games a little bit, right? So... My my thinking is I applaud Lewis for doing what he did. I think, what else are you going to do, right? I mean, if, if he were to either drive off into the distance, then he's like, oh, I'm going to win this race. Yeah, great. It's like, you know, he he's not dumb. Everybody, you know, no, 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 neither is Rosberg. None of these people are, it's not because anyone's dumb here. He knows he's going to lose the championship if Rosberg finished second. So why make that easier for him? If he had listened to the team and said, oh, you know, the team told me to speed up and uh, and then he sped up. And then he had this thought nagging in the back of his mind to say, oh, you know, I probably could have won that championship in 2016 uh, if only, I, you know, they had let me do my thing, you know, but they told me to speed up, so I sped up. And that's why I lost the championship. You know, he might have that, whether he believes it or not, um, or whether people on the internet believe it or not, you know, there'd always be that thought of, well, what if? But the fact that he tried everything he possibly could, 
he was in the position he was in, right? You know, short of having a time machine to go back and, and change some previous result, not an option. So all that he can do as the guy who puts it on pole in what even Nico Rosberg calls an impossible lap around Abu Dhabi, puts it on pole in spectacular fashion, is controlling the race from the very beginning, didn't do any kind of driving that the stewards had to investigate. There was no sort of weaving or swerving or, or kind of blocking kind of maneuver, you know, no, no investigation of holding anyone up. It was just a matter of controlling the pace. Oh, well, let um, me break in just briefly with that. I mean, Nico himself said uh, during post-race uh, interviews and conversations that what Hamilton was doing, he was doing perfectly. He was slowing down in exactly the right place and speeding up in exactly the right place that Nico couldn't do anything about it because it was pretty common for people to say, well, why didn't you pass him? And Nico effectively said, well, I couldn't. So what what Lewis was doing, he was doing amazingly well and consistently. So he gets, Lewis gets the, if you can call it that, I guess the satisfaction of knowing he he did everything he could and that he didn't back off just because the team told him to, to say, oh, either, you know, let Rosberg by and, because I think even Rosberg on the radio at one point is like, oh, well, like, let me pass him. And if, if the if the positions are still the same, still 1-2 at the end of the race, then he can pass me back and he can have the win. You know, something like that just seems artificial and, and, and goofy and, and not really what, you know, what we're all about. I did see some commenters saying, well, you know, hey, I don't, I don't tune in on to, to watch a race where just people are going slow. Like, that's really dumb. I, I don't want that. And I think that's kind of misguided as well, because in, you know, it's a matter of opinion, I guess. But what I tune into is to try to see the best, you know, drivers, the best engineering, the best technology the you know the the rules just kind of are what they are i guess and not not really the best rules but you know i want to see be you know people at the at the best uh, of their of their games of of their various skills trying to win trying to play within this within this rule book that's been come up with um to to try to win uh whether it's a race but ultimately really the championship so sometimes that means driving flat out sometimes that means saving fuel sometimes that's saving tires sometimes that's clever strategy uh usually it's a combination of all those things uh and in this case uh, i thought it was really interesting to see Lewis, like you say, sort of showing not just mastery of a car in terms of I can drive it really, really fast around the track, which he did in qualifying, but also I know I have the race craft and sort of the knowledge of my, my opponent and his car and my car and the, the track itself and let alone traffic and pit stops and everything else to do such a good job to hold him up, like you say, just the right places, just the right amount. If he'd slowed down a little bit too much, then Rosberg could have gotten around him. Then that would have looked dumb. It would have been like, oh, look, he just gave that place away. What, you know, what an idiot. And then Rosberg, of course, could have uh, driven off into the sunset and, you know, maybe Hamilton chased him, but then, then that gets tricky. If he, you know, it's a lot of times harder to drive this car slowly because you're not just focusing on maximum, maximum grip and maximum, you know, late braking and all that. So it could have been pretty easy for him to make a mistake and do that um, and, and cause his own problem. I mean, that would have looked really stupid for him if, if, if Lewis had spun out from the lead and then lost the race and the championship um, with, with Rosberg and potentially others driving by. So, you know, he executed, you know, he, he, he got himself into the situation uh, through the course of the season with the, the failures and the, the, you know, and the successes and everything else that we talked about earlier on. But all that he could have done in Abu Dhabi, I think, is what he did. And that's what I want to see out of a, out of a competitor. So I, I kind of am on board with, with what he did. I think it's kind of interesting. It's not a strategy we often see, but you can't fault him for not trying. And he tried. And, you know, he ultimately did everything that he could. Um, it wasn't successful, but hey, uh, you can't say he didn't try. At the moment it happened, I was getting irked because for me, there was a disrespect of the team that Hamilton was displaying by not listening to his race engineer and then indeed not listening to uh, technical director Patty Lowe, who then got on the radios and said, no, hey, seriously do this. 
that really bothered me. And I thought to myself, you're the front man of this company, but it is a much bigger than you company. And you work for that company. You should listen to that company. And I also felt like he's trying everything he can to win this championship, but this isn't the honorable way to do it. The honorable way to do it is to do everything you can and by luck and virtue and everything else, you win or you don't. The argument you just made is absolutely true. Okay, well, one of the ways he can potentially do it is make it easier for his closest competitor to get swallowed up by other drivers. That gets much trickier once that other competitor is also your teammate and also an employee of the same company. But after considering the history of Formula One and championships, more and more I thought to myself, okay, I can absolutely see Lewis's side of this. I took a look at Lewis's argument for doing what he did versus Mercedes' argument for doing what they did, which is to tell him to stop. Lewis's argument is these tactics right now only help my chances to become, uh, to, to gain a fourth world title title, excuse me, which would put me in very rarefied territory. I don't know how many more opportunities I'm going to get this. This has been my life dream forever and on and on. Big, big reasons to do what he was doing. He was proving, uh, and I'm sure the race engineer saw that, that he had plenty more pace. So he was not really in any serious terms risking a Mercedes victory because it was clear that he, he had more pace and he could pull away even if a Red Bull or a Ferrari got around his teammate. Mercedes' reason to do this is because they would be potentially giving up a 1-2 result. Instead of a 1-2 result, they'd end up with a 1-3 result or a 1-4 result positions. After already securing the Constructors' Championship, already getting a record number of poles for the season, already getting a record number of race wins, and on and on and on. You're like, you know, another one, two, another notch in your bedpost? What is that, really? You know what I mean? Like, that's it's pretty. it's a pretty nothing argument for wanting what you want. That really shifted my opinion to going from, uh, Lewis should listen to his team, to um, the team shouldn't push on this so hard. The one thing I want to add to that, though, is just as Lewis wants to do everything he do can do to win the championship. Rosberg, of course, wants to do everything he can do to win the championship. So if Rosberg can be strategic on the radio, that is just as much fair game as Lewis intentionally slowing down, in my opinion. So I do now feel that maybe the team shouldn't have been so judgy and trying to push Hamilton to drive a certain way, but I don't think Rosberg deserves any blame at all because Rosberg was just doing everything he could do to win the championship, just like Hamilton was doing everything he could do to win the championship. Yeah, and I don't I don't disagree with uh, with any of that. I, I agree that that's part of what we call racecraft. It's not just how quickly can you get this car around this particular circuit lap after lap, but also it's strategy calls, right? When to take a pit stop, how to uh, you know assess your competitors and find their strengths and weaknesses and and exploit them, and like you say, the radio calls and when you. Uh, you know, it, it's even, you know, calling in about weather. It's, oh, it, it's too, too, you know, too rain to run or no, it's fine. Let's go. Let's have at it. You know, all those are strategic decisions and all those play into every driver out there wants to win uh, every race if possible and if possible, win championships and all that. And of course, when you're that close, um, then yeah, I would much rather see 
Lewis do what he did. Uh, and yeah, that makes some people uncomfortable and whatever. And that's, that's part of the whole deal. But like you say, the potential upside for him for a, a fourth world championship, not quite consecutive, but um, you know, a, a fourth championship um, compared to, like you say, a slightly, potentially a slightly suboptimal result for Mercedes. Although in all likelihood, it seems like the most likely thing really would be if, if he slowed down such that uh, Rosberg could get around him. Uh, the one really embarrassing thing would be both Mercedes crashing into each other and taking each other out. <laughs> but even so, <laughs> Mercedes still has the Constructors' Championship, and their driver still wins the World Championship for drivers. So even that's not that bad for Mercedes. It's sort of stupid, but still fine, you know, in a corporate sense. That was that was a funny thing. It was it was four races to go. I'm pretty sure I'd have to look at, at with with four races to go for five or whenever it was. Uh, Mercedes officially secured both the Constructors' and the Drivers' Championship. They were both secured. The only question was which teammate would be the driver's championship. That was it. Right. And it shouldn't really matter to the team one way or the other. I mean, that's part, some of these theories online are like, oh, you know, it was all about Rosberg this year, and they're just, you know, pushing Hamilton aside. And some people, I think, are saying the other way, oh, Hamilton's the favorite, and, you know, they're just Rosberg just locked into it. I mean, whatever. That doesn't really matter. But for the team, for their sponsors and all that, you know, I guess they don't want to, you know, it would be embarrassing if several times in the season, the drivers crash into each other with without really fighting, but just with some kind of stupid reasoning or whatever, or just kind of some kind of like their, their drivers are being children and are being immature. That would that would look bad on the brand. But still, the fact that they were able to build this car and race it in such a way that uh, no one else could touch them and they clinched the championship that early in the season and all that. If I'm Mercedes and I'm sort of trying to tell the story about how my engineering is really great and my team is really good at winning stuff. Well, that's true. That happened. And, uh, and you know, Lewis being clever on this radio thing or not on the, on the pace and, uh, and you know, managing his pace as he did is all plays into the fact that, hey, we Mercedes hired this really good driver and, you know, he's really clever in addition to being able to drive his car fast. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see your, you know, refinement, I guess, of your of your thinking on it from uh, from just after the race when it seemed like you were a bit more sour about uh, his tactics. And uh, for even right away for me, I'm like, hey, man, he did his thing. And, uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I no, you help. were definitely supporting Hamilton from the beginning. I was a little neutral to a little miffed by it. But I, I can't help that thought of if he had if he had listened to the team right away whether he would say it or whether his fans would say it or whatever of like, oh, he could have won. You know, he totally could have backed him up enough. And like this way, Hamilton tried what he tried and he showed that, okay, well, yeah, I'm clever at backing people up. It wasn't enough to, to win in the championship. I mean, it didn't work. So you can't say it was, you know, the, 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 uh, whether it was clever or not. I mean, you know, it was, it was a good try and he tried it. He tried everything. Um, in the end, it wasn't successful. So in a way it's kind of like, all right, well, you, you know, you had your chance and, you know, the team actually asked you not to, you still just, you know, ignored them and, and did your thing. And uh, it was sort of call it tough, but fair, call it wrong, call it whatever. Um, but he can't go back and say, well, if the team had let me, I totally could have won. It's like, nope, he tried his thing. Right. And Rosberg ended up with the championship and uh, Hamilton ended up with the win. And, you know, it is what it is. So I think that's probably the most satisfying response because there's not this lingering question of what if and, oh, what if the team had let him or what if this or that? It's like, well, nope, he tried and it didn't work. But well, hey, and it, we all got to see it happen. And indeed, I think that was it, it actually became a testament to Nico's resolve this year because he was put in a position where he did right to the last few laps. There were times where Vettel got quite quick because Vettel got around Verstappen. Verstappen became, uh, the last few laps, Verstappen became less of a threat. His tires were wearing out. But Vettel was right there, and there were moments where Vettel got very, very close. And Nico kept his driving very clean, very spot on, and never gave Vettel a chance to really make a strong attempt to get around him. And that, considering the pressure that Nico was feeling at the time, that takes tremendous resolve. And I think 
Nico deserves quite a bit of credit for that driving just as much as Hamilton deserves the understanding of he did everything he could for his driving and he did it very well. So in many ways, Hamilton did everything he could, which is the more satisfying result for fans. Nico did everything he could and indeed held on, which is a more satisfying thing for himself and for fans to be able to see and say. And Vettel got to try. So I this absolutely for the fans, for Formula One as a whole, this was absolutely a win-win. I also want to say that I posed this question pretty soon after the race on Facebook, and we had a lot of people reaching out. We had several comments over 20 comments on this. No, sorry, 20 comments on this. And I just really appreciate hearing everyone's thoughts and reading everyone's ideas. Overwhelmingly, our listeners and fans on Facebook uh, agreed that Hamilton did the right thing and did everything he could. I just want to read one. I thought it was a really interesting uh, take on it. Uh, from Colin Sato, he said, Compared to the other formerly Formula One championship fights that ended in a crash, such as Prost versus Senna, Senna versus Prost, Schumacher versus Hill, or Schumacher versus Villeneuve, I see this as a straight fight. If New if Lewis kept slowing down, Nico could have crashed him. That would have been far worse outcome, in my opinion. And I think that really helps remind us that Formula One had several championships and in a bitter kind of tone and there's absolutely nothing unprecedented about what Lewis did and in many ways there were certainly vastly more uh, devious things that Lewis could have tried that have happened in the past that he didn't do if Lewis did do those more devious things that would have only put him in company of other past champions so I think that was a really pertinent uh, comment to make yeah, I guess uh, Rosberg could have what uh, plowed into Hamilton when he was being held up so yeah. much. Oh, said, oh, Rosberg could have now, and I have more points, so I guess I win. Rosberg so, yeah, could have absolutely taken them both out right at the beginning and said, "Yep, I'm done. I win." You know, and people would have really disliked Rosberg and Formula One in general. Not for least that. of which Hamilton would have dis- disliked that. No I mean, kidding, which is exactly his right to do so. So yeah. the two of them did both did everything they could do in a way that maybe isn't the most honorable, but it's <laughs> far, far from the least. And you got to give them a lot of credit for that. Well, I guess the question is, is it unsporting? And my thinking is that this, that's part of what we like about the sport is that it's not just a, you know, it's not just qualifying, right? It's not just everyone on their own, go see what you can do, but it's part of it is dealing with those around you and all that. So I think, you know, in my view, that is part of the sport. And it's, it's one of those questions we've had over the couple last couple of years. And, you know, certainly recently, um, is it a sport? Is it entertainment? Should there, you know, how, how are the rules uh, benefiting one side or the other? And uh, should there be sprinklers on the tracks? And should there be joker laps and, and all these kind of things? So, uh, you know, Formula One's in, the, in this weird, I wouldn't call it identity crisis so much, but uh, in this, you know, big sort of, there's a lot of questions being raised about different things. And this is, you know, it's a, a matter of opinion, but my opinion is that this is part of what is sporting, uh, is seeing people be clever and, and have an interpretation of the rules. So if he didn't break any rules, he didn't have any investigations, he didn't cause a crash, it wasn't a safety concern. It was just managing a pace and he trying a trying a strategy and he was open about it. And I like this better than the the weird remember when team orders when it was officially not allowed to tell your drivers what to do, to, to swap positions or speed up or slow down or whatever. I mean specifically about swapping positions. But the drivers could still sort of like, you know, I remember Kimi Raikkonen uh, letting Massa through saying, oh, I didn't have an order from the team, but I kind of 
we all know what we're doing here. It was sort of this, you know, unsaid, but everyone understands, wink, wink, kind of what's going on. And this wasn't that. This wasn't Lewis Hamilton saying, oh, no, I was driving as fast as I could. This is what it is. Yeah. He, I, I appreciate that he was honest about it, saying, yeah, man, I was trying everything I possibly could. Uh, so at least we have the, the clarity into what the driver's doing. And so we as fans get to understand, here's what's, what, they're, what they're doing and what's, what's happening. And uh, I think uh, on all fronts, I think I'm, I'm sort of, I'm good with it. That That is the kind of sport that I would want to watch. It's like, yeah, sometimes they're going slower than others, but they're still driving really fast and it's still amazing cars. And that's part of the craft that uh, I think makes it interesting. Yeah. One more thing to give Mercedes credit as a whole. Yeah. So Mercedes, maybe they were getting a little bit needly with their calls in the last few laps of this race. But generally speaking, Mercedes has given Nico Rosberg and Hamilton full license to race each other. Indeed, they've crashed into each other multiple times, and Mercedes still didn't say, okay, team orders from now on. They still allowed them to race. It was painful at times. <laughs> Toto Wolf was very honest at moments and be like, ugh, they're making this hard on me, right? But Mercedes let them race. Mercedes did not do anything to hamper that. And even more so, generally speaking, unless you're a conspiracy theorist, Mercedes gave Rosberg and Hamilton equal equipment, equal resources, and on and on. Mercedes has been the dominant team for the last three seasons. Maybe that won't be the case next year because there are some rule changes that might allow some others to keep up, but Mercedes won't be the slowest, okay, certainly. I want to compare this to the last team-dominant era, which was Ferrari, turn of the century, when Schumacher won 2000 through 2004 championships. What Mercedes did was so much more satisfying for the fans than what Ferrari did. So I really want to take a moment and to... Thank Toto Wolf and thank Mercedes for allowing even the last three seasons dominated by one team to still have a lot of interest in viewing compared to what we had, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Here, here. Well, hopefully, looking forward, Ferrari will be uh, in a position to be fighting for wins and stuff like that again in the future, but we'll have seen what Mercedes has done. And instead of picking one driver as the golden favorite, uh, then, you know, allowing uh, having two competitive drivers and allowing them to race hopefully is the way things happen for this generation of Formula One. So I'm looking forward to that in a general sense. And uh, same with Red Bull. I mean, right now with uh, uh, Verstappen and Ricardo, they have a pretty good matched pair of uh, of drivers and it's, there's no one clear forward and favorite. So, um, yeah, I'm hopeful that in the coming years as, uh, you know, new new rules and stuff happen and if uh, new tracks and new regulations and things uh, come into play, that uh, the the lessons of you know the fans enjoying teams uh, letting drivers race that that you know is is a, a lesson that's learned and carried forward. So I'm hopeful that uh, that these things will happen. And uh, looking forward as always to uh, to next year. Now we talked about a bunch of retirements earlier on, and uh, one guy that didn't expect to retire this, at the end of the season is Mr. Ron Dennis from McLaren. Yeah, yeah, he kind of had a little bit to do with McLaren from 1980 through now. Uh, no longer the case. There's a new guy. Uh, well, so he was basically pushed out by the other owners of the McLaren group. Uh, Ron Dennis was not a majority stakeholder. He was a minority stakeholder and did not have enough clout to keep himself in the position. They pushed him out. There's a new guy coming. His name is Zach Brown. He is an American. He was born in Los Angeles, 
and he did try driving himself. He raced in Europe. He did British Formula Ford. He did British Formula 3 and some German Formula 3. He raced in the American, <clears throat> excuse me, the American Le Mans series and started his own team, but he also started a company called Just Marketing International or GMI. And that turned out to be a successful motorsports marketing company. So he is going to be the new, goodness, what was his title? They're calling him like managing director or something like that. And yeah, so the things at McLaren continue to stay dynamic. <laughs> it's, it's that's, a, that's a nice word for it. Yeah, it's a dynamic workplace. Meaning, yeah, that's, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think anyone uh, wishes that McLaren, and especially with Honda, you know, continues to languish around and scrambling for points and having mysterious failures and frustrated drivers. I mean, you know, everyone hopes that they can get that organization figured out and get back to some level of glory and hopefully, yeah, be up there fighting with the, uh, the Ferraris, Red Bulls, and Mercedes of the world. So, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. You know, it'll be a while to see how these changes at the top manifest themselves in the Formula 1 team, but I hope that for whatever whatever Ron doing, Dennis was doing wrong, the new guys can do right and uh, make, it all, make it all happen and come up with cool road cars and fast race cars and all that. Yes, exactly. His title will be executive director. And according to the BBC, uh, he was quoted as saying, as founder of JMI, now the world's largest motorsport marketing agency, I've often worked closely with McLaren and I've, developed some excellent relationships across the company. So he feels strong that he has um, a good relationship with many people inside that company. And I, I certainly, for the sake of the Formula One team, hope that he is a great executive director at the team. And yeah, well, <laughs> and we'll, we'll have to see. Got to direct those executives. I was getting lost otherwise. Anyway, I think, you know, to end on on a personal note, uh, the 2016 Formula One season was certainly uh, the most exciting season for me as my wife and I added a human being into this world. And I would imagine that it wasn't the least exciting for Jim because <laughs> he did the same. Um, but that certainly has complicated schedules. But I just wanted to take a quick moment to say, I absolutely appreciate everyone's understanding and patience throughout all this and uh, just really happy that you stayed on to listen to this one. Yeah, we appreciate it. So uh, definitely uh, it doesn't cost you anything to keep us in your podcast catcher uh, and, uh, you know, I guess keep liking us on Facebook so that the, you know, our, our, our posts show up in your feed and all that. So we always appreciate people spreading the word and sharing it. And uh, I don't know exactly what the next thing to be posted in our feed will be because we do uh, the the articles that Robin writes and the photo posts uh, with our help from Jamie Price, our photographer friend. Uh, we, of course, have the podcast and the stuff on Facebook, stuff on Twitter and all that. So um, we appreciate you staying subscribed to these things. And uh, we'll see how, how things shake up in the offseason if we can uh, find some time to streamline some processes and synergize some, uh, you know, co... I don't Ooh, know what business like buzzwords you We, we just need to with, streamline but... and synergize. Why yeah, didn't we that, think of that, that before? Well, because we weren't, we weren't, I don't know what we weren't doing, but we weren't doing it. Yes. Well, we, we should, uh, we should brainstorm about reasons why we didn't streamline and synergize. No, we need to to, to leverage our core competencies into new markets. You know what? That was something that I felt we weren't leveraging. 
our core competencies. And uh, right. we should have brainstormed about that too. Right. Well, we need a blue sky thinking and a real, not put this in the parking lot, but circle back, I think is probably what needs to happen. And you know what? We should think outside the box this time. We should think outside the bun. We should go get some time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, as as with any good uh, Formula One uh, F1, <laughs> what's, what's our name again? Fun with Cars podcast. It ends with food. What's your name, sir? I am Jim Lau. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please keep up with us on funwithcars.com. Links to Facebook and Twitter. You guys know the drill. And uh, thanks, as always, for listening. And I'm Robin Warner. Thank you, guys, 1,000 times. It's, it's been a blast. And there's now more humans. You're welcome. <laughs> 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 <laughs>